Join me in Hebrews chapter 13. I thought today I would probably be finishing the book, but we're not quite that far. Hebrews 13, beginning at verse 15. And let's go to prayer. Lord God, as we gather week by week to hear from you, to open your truth, to understand you better, may our lives reflect what we learn from your word. May we never be simply desiring to know without intention and action in living. May we not see our salvation as something simply possessed, but not meant to be lived out. This, Lord, is the emphasis you bring in the passage near the end of this letter of Hebrews for us this morning. May we live according to your truth, lest your truth seem unimportant and ineffective. We fall short. We sin. We need to repent all the time. Nevertheless, by your power and through your grace, may we be living witnesses of what you have given to us. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Through him then, through Christ then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name and do not neglect doing good and sharing for with such sacrifices God is pleased obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this so that I may be restored to you the sooner. So as Paul is now closing his letter, he gives some very practical, simple instruction here in verses 15 to 19. Not quite at the end, but nevertheless, as he reflects back on all that has been presented throughout the letter, simple, practical instruction, that we could sum up as a charge to live faithful lives of service, thus the title of my message. 
So if you look at these verses just in an overall way quickly, we see this calling of ours to live faithful lives of service toward God, verse 15, and toward one another, verse 16, and then, interestingly, toward those who are charged by God to lead us, verses 17, 18, and 19. Now, again, for context, important for me to review some things quickly. The Jews, God's people, not all of whom were saved, not all of whom were believers, but God's people in the time of Christ in the first century had come to a very great misunderstanding of what their scripture, the Old Testament, was saying. The scribes and the Pharisees, and this relates to living faithful lives. How do we live faithful lives? The scribes and the Pharisees reduced everything to obeying their rules, which in too many cases were extra-biblical or not rooted in God's Word. They presented it as though it was, but it wasn't. The scribes and the Pharisees in the first century had come to teach a form of works salvation, which was a denial of the true gospel. Faithful service, the, the emphasis of our text, faithful service to God was seen as primarily a matter of temple rituals making the prescribed sacrifices and offerings, following the letter of the law, and yet knowing very little of the spirit of God's law. So they, they, they wanted service, they wanted obedience, but this was according to the letter of the law without knowledge of the spirit of the law, which in turn perverts the letter of the law. And following the letter of the law on their part, too often was really only following their own, scribes and Pharisees, Jewish leaders, oral traditions and recorded traditions and not following the actual biblical law of God or not following the actual biblical word of God as he had given it through the prophets in written form. With the sacrificial atoning death of his son, now we move forward, first century, but with the death of Christ the son, God was, of course, no longer even looking for animal sacrifices, which we've already had it explained to us in Hebrews, actually in and of themselves accomplished nothing. They were always point that wasn't mean they were unimportant but they were always pointing to the perfect final sufficient sacrifice of Christ so once Christ dies on the cross rises again then there are there to be no more sacrifices now if you take the sacrifices and offerings out now you have a whole lot of stuff the scribes and the Pharisees were urging upon the people in terms of faithful service which was all too often not biblical Once Christ came and died, the animal sacrifices pointing to and picturing his death, they had no further purpose. The sacrifice that God wants now, in accordance with living faithfully, 
The sacrifice that God wants now under the new covenant is, verse 15, a sacrifice of praise to God. Now it should be pointed out. It's not like this is a brand new thing that God wants. Now we're going to start doing this. We weren't doing this before. No, a sacrifice of praise to God, what he's calling for, what God wants, is consistent with what God has always wanted. He wants the hearts of his people, whether New or Old Testament, throughout time, he wants the hearts of his people faithfully submitted to him in worship and lived out in service. That's always been the case. That will continue to always be the case as long as this world exists. And indeed, eternity. Without that, that's what he wants. And that's not what was often happening. It looked like it. They were involved in services but it wasn't genuine, without real hearts submitted to God in worship and lived out in service, all that is happening on the part of those who look like believers or profess to be believers is just outward ritual, which by itself is worthless. If it's done from the heart, very worthwhile. But by itself, outwardly, it's worthless. God has always desired heartfelt faith demonstrated in genuine words and deeds, living out the faith faithfully. He has always desired that over mere external rote rituals performed by nothing more than obligation. So then I pause at this point with that broader contextual explanation to say, do you see the importance of this that I have explained? This is always what God has wanted. He wanted it before Christ came, and he still wants it today. Heartfelt faith in him demonstrated in genuine words and deeds. Judaism by the first century, not throughout its history, but by the first century, Judaism, contrary to Scripture, had come to think through the teaching of their leaders, wrongful teaching. They had come to think that as long as one was Jewish, as long as one was descended through a Jewish mother, as long as one followed the rules, and again, let me remind you, this was much more often the rules of the scribes and Pharisees themselves than necessarily always biblical rules. As long as one was Jewish and as long as one followed the rules externally. That's why you had the Jews spending all of this time with all the details of what does it mean not to work on the Sabbath? Well, uh, you can't do certain kinds of activities. That would be work. They went way beyond what Scripture said. You can only walk so far, for instance, or it would become work. Following these things externally, the actions externally, they weren't concerned at all with what was going on in your heart, in your mind, in your attitude. So regardless of where your internal mind and heart attitude was, if you followed the rules and you were Jewish, all was well, they thought. Not so. 
There must be faith in God, which is dependence on God because we are sinners and we are unable to obey God's laws and commands on our own. Even though God gave all these commands, one of the reasons he gave all these commands in his law was to demonstrate that unless there was real relationship with him, heartfelt faith, We cannot, human beings cannot, do not, will not obey God's laws and commands on their own. And the faith that we are to have is not merely external. It must be true commitment from within, from the heart, that means something to us. It isn't just rote obedience that means nothing. It isn't just rote repetition of prayers, which means nothing. It isn't just outward acts done with no real faith, No real love, no real passion. But, back to Hebrews 13, 15, and 19. Such faith, genuine faith, such faith cannot just be possessed and passive. True faith in Christ must always or I should say must and always does issue forth in words and deeds. You can't just have faith and possess it. It must always issue forth in words and deeds. Faith without works is dead, useless, insufficient, not true faith. On the contrary, in genuine faith, look back at verse 15, In genuine faith, we are to offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. The sacrifice of praise that God is after must come through Christ. Notice how verse 15 states it. Verse 15 begins with through him. The sacrifice of praise that God is after must come through Christ. We don't offer up this sacrifice of praise to God in our own names or by our own power. We do so through Jesus. He is the one and only true mediator. We can only bring, in other words, acceptable sacrifice of praise if we offer it to God through his son. Let's expand on that. Our sacrifice of praise is what Paul talked about elsewhere in Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, by the mercy, it's got to be done through his power, it's by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. You can't, I can't, none of us can do what God wants, but by God's provided power. We are to give ourselves in totality to Christ. And we are to give ourselves to live for him, devoted to his word and his will, which can only be done properly, rightly, through the power of his spirit. This is quite the opposite of the way 
that even today, now I'm not talking about the Jews, I'm not talking about the Old Testament, I'm not talking about the time of Christ. This is quite the opposite of the way that many view the Christian life today. For many, the highest aspiration is simply getting saved. For many, the highest goal that they have in regard to others is that they would get saved. If they can just make it into heaven, if you can just lead someone to accept Jesus, that's enough in the minds of many. That you, you've accomplished the mission. But that is hardly what Christianity is all about. Amen. Justification, getting saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, I mean really saved, really genuine saved, is critically important. I don't mean to minimize it. It is critical. It's the dividing line. There are the saved and there are the lost. See how I did that? I used my left hand on your right side. Saved, right, lost, left. <laughs> it's critically important. But getting saved is not the end or the final goal. It is the means to a life of service pleasing to God. In other words, justification or getting saved is the hinge on which the door, if you will, of the gospel turns or opens. It's true that until we are justified, we are not saved. So only through the door of the gospel and justification, getting saved, do we enter the Christian life. But having entered, we haven't arrived and we're done. Having entered through the door, we are meant to live what we believe. I've said that, I've prayed that, but I emphasize this because this is so foundationally important to everything that we are doing in this life, in Christ. We are meant to live what we believe. Through the door of justification, we enter into the presence of God that we may live with joy and with awe as his royal children in this world. Offering up our lives as, verse 15, sacrifices of praise for his service and for his pleasure. Jesus, remember, said, the Father is seeking worshipers to worship Him in spirit and in truth. John 4, verses 23 and 24. It is for this that we are saved, to live sacrificially unto Christ, to offer up a lifestyle of worship, which is a lifestyle of service. If you think of worship simply as, as something that we narrowly do, not a bad thing, but that we narrowly do in a worship service, you haven't understood. Worship is all of our service to God. A lifestyle of service for the blessing of others and for the glory of God. Emphasized in our very text this morning. Does a life, therefore wholly devoted to God, to loving God, to loving others, and serving God, and serving others. 
does such a life mean that we as Christians are only to engage in religious work? If we're to have our, our lives now in Christ totally devoted to doing what God says and what God wants, should we, some have thought, should we perhaps quit our, quote, secular jobs and enter vocational Christian ministry? Meaning, what Pastor Eric and Pastor Eddie and, and I and the elders, in effect, are doing, that's what everybody ought to pursue and do. All other things are unimportant because we should be directly serving God. No! It means that all work, your work, whatever it may be, unless you're doing something clearly immoral, it means that all work is religious. All work involves the worship, if it's done rightly, of the one true God. But the reality is, all people everywhere are working for one God or another. In our work as believers, whatever our individual tasks are, we are to actively serve Christ and not just serve ourselves. The great temptation for mankind is that whatever man does is ultimately in service for self. And indeed, I would argue that the adherence, adherence, adherence of all other religions other than the one true one are, are basically seeking to serve themselves. They are, they are making all kinds of statements and activities that look like they're serving a God, but they are actually, in reality, serving themselves. We are not to do that. We are to actively serve Christ in all things, not just serve ourselves. That doesn't mean that we all get, quote, Christian jobs. We have all kinds of things we are to do, and we are all doing it to serve the Lord. People complain that many Christians are too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. They're just wrapped up in in God and Jesus and, and doing what they want, and that's not helpful to the world. M many think or claim. Actually, the opposite is much more accurate. Too often, even we who know Christ genuinely are too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. We too often just live secularly rather than continually offering up, verse 15, a sacrifice of praise to God. This is, this is the, the dividing line. If you, yes, the dividing line is one is saved or lost. It's also, does one live for Christ or does one live for self? 24-7 in every kind of endeavor, we are to serve the Lord consciously and actively. So what does this sacrifice of praise sound like? Well, read on. It sounds like the fruit of our lips that give thanks to or confess his God's name. This means, as Paul expressed it in Romans, chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, public confession with our mouths sacrifice of praise and belief in the heart 
sacrifice of praise. Lived out sacrifice of praise. Our lips must speak forth what we truly believe inwardly. And God always knows, doesn't he, if we are being genuine because he is the one who knows our hearts. Others don't necessarily know. We can testify to things with our lips that aren't genuine. Others don't know, don't know but God does. And what he is after is genuine expression of lips, what is genuinely in the heart through right relationship with him. So we are to praise God and profess the Christian faith with our lips, verse 15. This is not done just in gatherings of corporate worship. It encompasses our whole manner of speaking. All of which, our whole manner of speaking, either confesses or denies his name. What do I mean here? Through our speech, our whole attitude, our whole self is revealed through our speech with devastating accuracy. Jesus said, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart, Matthew 12, verse 34. The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What is in your heart will come out of your mouth. The only way to have a clean mouth is to have a clean heart. Clean and wholesome speech indicates a whole life dedicated to the praise of God. So powerful is our speech as a gauge of our true spiritual condition that Paul uses this in Romans 3 as a summary of the natural man's depravity. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursings and bitterness. Romans 3 verse 13 and 14. I submit to you that describes at least Western culture today. Behind the veneer of our prosperity, and I say that in a time when we're now wondering perhaps are the banks going to remain okay? Are we going to lose that which we have? Behind the veneer of our prosperity, the common manner of speech of our society, of our culture, of our times, and we take part in it too often as we sin, reveals a rot of the soul. Some of the worst sins committed against God are committed by the tongue. Some of the greatest harm done to other people is done by the tongue. Our tongue, our responsibility. Now you've heard it. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Is that true? Well, speech alone, the kernel of truth in that statement, speech alone may not cause physical damage. But... 
The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. James 3, verse 6 and 8. Pretty strong language. I imagine we can all probably think of things said to us recently or even long ago that have perhaps scarred us deeply. Bringing on a world of evil in our lives. And likely, we have done this to others. Words are powerful weapons. They can be powerful instruments of blessing and worship, or they can be powerful offensive weapons. Do we live to praise God? And then add verse 16, Hebrews chapter 13. True worship is not simply or not just the fruit of lips. It's always involving giving ourselves in service to Christ and in service to others. We can say elegant prayers. We can sing glorious songs. But if we do not do good to others, if we do not share what we have, verse 16, if we do not share what we have, none of what we are doing gives God pleasure. So are you making the sacrifice of a shared life? We are to act kindly toward others, ready to show generosity to those in need, ready to give freely of our wealth because we know that to do so pleases and glorifies God and because we love others more than we love our money. False religion is always exposed by its attitude toward possessions. How we use our money, which is a matter, should be a matter of how we freely choose to use our money, not, not enforced by government, etc. That doesn't indicate anything about our hard attitude. How we freely choose to use our money always tests the authenticity of our devotion to God. The heart that is too close to the back pocket is a heart that is out of place. It is a heart that grows numb to the good gifts and possessions of God. Do we give generously, freely, openly, as God has given us? Just as with our speech, it is only as the heart is weaned from the world and drawn close to God that we can actually use our money as an instrument of sacrificial worship and service. You see, everything that we do depends upon the heart, attitude, and real faith relationship with God. We can go through the same actions. Give money to this, give money to that or give money to this or that. If we do it with devotion to God, that's one thing. If we do it without devotion to God, it means nothing to Him. 
Corrie Ten Boom told about her father, a poor, godly shopkeeper. One morning, the family gathered for prayer, asking God to send them a customer to buy a watch, to buy an expensive watch, they hoped, so that they could pay their bills. They actually prayed for this. And a customer did come that day, and this customer picked a very expensive watch. And when he paid for it, he casually mentioned to Mr. Tenboom how another merchant had sold him a defective watch. Corey's father asked to look at this defective watch, and he pointed out to the man that it only required a very minor repair to get it to work properly. He assured the buyer, who had just bought a watch for, from him because he had a defective one, he assured the buyer that the watch that he already had, which Mr. Tenboom had fixed very quickly and easily, was a high-quality timepiece, and thus Corey's father refunded to that man right there the money that he had just spent to buy the watch from Corey's father. No sale needed. After the man left the shop, Corey said, Papa, why did you do that? Aren't you worried about the bills that you have due? And her father replied, There is blessed and there is unblessed money. Amen. He explained that God would not be honored if we allowed another merchant's reputation to be wrongly harmed, especially since he knew this other shop owner and he knew the man was a believer. He assured Corey, in spite of the fact that there was now no sale, no money provided to them for the great needs they had, he assured Corey that God would provide. Well, a few days later, another buyer came and this buyer bought the most expensive watch that Mr. Ten Boom had. The sale of that watch not only cleared all the bills they owed, but the sale of that single watch provided funds necessary for two more years of Corey's education. Amen. The godly use of our money teaches our children what it is to trust the Lord while also revealing the fervency of our trust and our devotion to God. Now look at verse 17 and following. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Obey your leaders. When one knows for a fact that certain church leaders are leading unbiblically in fundamental matters of the faith, not in gray area questionable, when one knows that church leadership are leading unbiblically in critical fundamental matters of the faith, the best thing to do is to find another church. 
I'm not even going to tell you that the best thing to do is necessarily confront the leadership because in most cases that goes very poorly. It's kind of like when I realized in classes in college that my professor in religion classes teaching about Christianity was teaching that which was false, I decided I needed to go to the professor and help him to understand correctly. And I'm, I'm not saying that that effort is worthless, but I made that effort, great effort, at length, and it goes nowhere. No way this man's going to admit to me that what he is saying is inappropriate. The best thing to do when there's clearly unbiblical leadership is find another church. Don't follow such leaders. When one knows that church leaders are leading biblically, the obedience which is called for here in Hebrews 13 and verse 17 should be easy. When one does not know if the church leaders are leading biblically or not, you can now think of the relationship between those charged with responsibility to lead and those who are receiving their teaching of the Word of God. When one does not know if that teaching, that leadership, is biblical or not. You simply don't know. I'm charged to be responsible, but you don't know. One is under obligation to obey. And the prime responsibility for what is done falls upon the leaders. In the American political environment, people cast their votes for leaders who will support policies that they believe are good for the nation and that they believe are good for themselves personally. Every political leader knows that his or her job depends on pleasing his or her constituency. The political arena is thus not a place conducive to nurturing leaders who put conscience ahead of popularity. They know that they need to serve those who follow them, and thus they're not necessarily going to put conscience ahead of They want to do what will please their constituency. Most politicians tell people what they want to hear. When many politicians lie about what they think or what they believe or what they want to do, it's usually because they believe their constituency wants to hear the opposite. But that's not leadership. The church of Jesus Christ is not a democracy. The church of Jesus Christ is not a representative republic. I value greatly a representative republic. I think what America was founded as is a great thing. But the church of Jesus Christ is not even a representative republic. God did not institute a representative government in his church. Nor does everyone on all things get a vote. We are a congregational church. That means we believe that the congregation should vote. But God did not suggest that on all matters, on all things, everyone gets even a vote. Christ is the sole sovereign and the supreme authority of his church. He is the king, he is the master, he is the Lord. His word is law. Unlike politics, in the church, the people are not the final authority. Unlike even American politics, the people are not the final. And I know we're largely running away from that today, but in its ideal, 
The church, it's not the people who are the final authority. God himself is our authority. Good human biblical leadership. Good human biblical leadership. Your pastors, your elders, your deacons. Looks ultimately to God, not ultimately to the congregation. Obey your leaders, therefore. Properly understood. Obey your leaders, not because they are smarter, but because God knows what you need. Leaders who will teach you faithfully God's word. And we pray, live it faithfully. Be assured, God will deal with those church leaders who do not faithfully preach and teach his word. He may not deal with them immediately, but he will deal with them. He will deal with me. For all church leaders are held to a higher accountability, James 3, verse 1. Our responsibility, now I speak as part of a congregation, our responsibility is not simply to show up and to receive instruction from the elders, from the pastors, from the deacons, whatever, of the church. They are to be obeyed and submitted to. We submit not so much to the persons, but to what they teach from God's word. Pastors, elders, teachers in the church are involved in the care of souls. Verse 17. They watch over the spiritual lives of the people God has given to them, exercising their ministry before God to whom they will give account. And that is an extremely sobering reality if you take it at all seriously. God desires us to obey our leaders joyfully and willingly such that they experience joy in their leading and not grief or groaning. Giving those who lead a hard time. If you were in Sunday school, I demonstrated this for you. I gave Eric a hard time. (laughs) Giving those who lead... I say, you get the point. A hard time and not submitting to what they teach is unprofitable for us. And it leaves us more susceptible to false teaching, which only leads us astray. Speaking now in the context of one who's receiving it. Grudging obedience to our leaders does not sharpen our hearts. It only hardens our hearts. Lots of Old Testament and first century Judaism was grudging obedience. Their heart wasn't in it. They weren't being taught their heart had to be in it. They just had to obey. Well, it was grudging obedience. It doesn't do you any good. Only further hardens hearts. All biblical submission... All biblical submission, whether of citizens to rulers, or of children to parents, or of wives to husbands, he said that, or of members of the body to their elders, all true submission is done unto the Lord. 
It is a sacrificial act of worship and trust. To obey leaders in the church means mainly receiving the teaching that they bring. The Greek verb translated obey here in verse 17 is also used to mean being persuaded. The word submit means to yield to proper authority established by God. Our obedience and submission we offer to God as worship, receiving the truth and yielding to our spiritual leaders in the process. To try and sum this up, I I, I suggest there are six reasons, I'll go through them quickly, that are found for this obedience and submission referred to in verse 17. The first is found in the word leaders, which may also be translated guides. True spiritual leaders are those who go before the flock into, as a guide, into the word of God, into prayer, and into the Christian life. Just as the letter to the Hebrews emphasizes the fact that Jesus is the all-sufficient guide leading us to God, so also the Lord has appointed leaders in the church to guide us on his, on the Lord's behalf. This is especially linked to being persuaded because Christian leaders are above all else to be guides into God's Word. So if there are Christian leaders who aren't really even teaching God's Word, go to another church. Now, let's offer balancing clarification. You should not say, as my own mother often did, I believe it because John says so. You should say, I have been taught the word by Pastor John or Pastor Eric or Pastor Eddie or by any of the elders, Mike, Scott, Harold. They have explained the word and now my conscience is bound to God to believe and to obey. Second, We submit to spiritual leaders because their authority comes from Christ. We are really submitting to Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 tells us that God gave apostles and he gave prophets and he gave evangelists and he gave pastor teachers. I think that's a combined term for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ. This authority is spiritual and moral. It's not temporal. It's not worldly. Jesus, remember, said, my kingdom is not of this world. John 18, verse 36. Christian leaders, elders and deacons, are called to serve the church and we are to receive them as authorities established by Jesus himself. Third and fourth reasons. Verse 17 of Hebrews 13. Church leaders keep watch over your souls 
as those who will give an account. The keeping watch, third reason, as those who give an account, fourth reason. Many people engage security companies to help them protect their possessions. They follow the advice of such companies. People take the advice of financial advisors. People take the advice of doctors. People take the advice of capable leaders in all kinds of categories. But the spiritual leaders in the church are to watch over our very souls. They are gifted by God for rule and biblical teaching. They lie awake at night. Personal testimony now. They lie awake at night, which is what keeping watch literally means. They lie awake at night pondering your spiritual well-being and how they might help and support you in the faith. And as under-shepherds, they must give an account to the great shepherd. They're not serving for their own benefit. They're serving for our benefit. We must all help them through obedience and faith. Fifth, our obedience is what makes spiritual leadership a joy and not a burden. Without a doubt, the single greatest discouragement any pastor faces is a congregation that will not believe what he teaches from the Word of God. They will not strive to live it out faithfully. This is what wears pastors down. Not hours of studious labor, but frustration with hard-hearted members of the flock. The greatest gift that Christians can give to their leaders is readiness to believe and to obey, to live God's word. Spiritual leaders realizing the gravity of their calling and thus our need for grace, knowing the great insufficiency that we ourselves carry into our own calling as leaders, will ask for, will plead for prayer. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you all the more to do this, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. If obedience is our duty to our leaders in the body, surely prayer is the greatest ministry that anyone can offer to a pastor to an elder, to a deacon. Surely prayer is the greatest gift that anyone can give to spiritual leaders. What Paul is saying in verses 18 and 19 on behalf of those who lead is this. We see what our duty is and we believe that we are on target, but please pray that we might be faithful serving God with a clean conscience and living honorably as an example to others. Pray that I live as an example honorably to you, that I serve God with a clean conscience. Why pray that? Because I don't always do it correctly. If you don't pray for such things regularly for your leaders, you fail to realize both the importance of that for the church and you fail to recognize the 
frailty of the leader's sinful nature, which, like yours, is flesh in all its weakness. We are living in a time of gross sins among too many spiritual leaders, the damage of which has been unestimable. And we should cry to God for such a thing not to occur in our church. We need to pray for the protection of our leaders, both from spiritual attack and from the normal dangers that are found in our world. At the funeral of the great Puritan Richard Stibbs, Isaac Walton said, Of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. That should be true of all Christian leaders. Whenever the church is strong, whenever the body stands for God boldly, there will always be found such leaders, bold and true to the word of God, setting an example, preaching persuasively in the power of the Holy Spirit. However, the best of all such leaders will always be frustrated in ministry unless the people of God hear what is taught from the Word, hear it with joy, believe it, and put it into practice, committing their lives to God through prayer and worship and service. Friends, that is the whole of the Christian life. And it is a mighty, blessed thing when lived faithfully. When God's leaders and the flock they serve live in harmony before the Lord, then heaven is in all of us. Even while we still walk upon the face of this fallen world. Let's pray. May these things that we have observed in your word be true in our lives individually and together that you may be known, that your name may be hallowed, that those who don't know you would see good reason to believe in you. May this be so among us and as we go forth every day in Christ, I pray, for these especially who hear. Amen. Stand for the benediction. If you have been blessed in the hearing of what you have heard from God's Word, may you be blessed in the living, the doing of what you have heard in God's Word, now 
and ongoing continually. Depart in his peace only, yours in Christ. Amen.